listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Later in our service today, we're going to be, uh, uh, later in our service, we'll be taking the Lord's table. And because of that, uh, we're going to jump right into our sermon for this morning. So let me invite you, if you can, to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1, the text that Mark read at the outset of our service today. And we are going to be examining just a few verses, uh, four verses, in fact, verses 27 through 30 of Philippians 1. Uh, Let me uh, begin again uh, this week by how we ended last Sunday with a big thank you to our church family on behalf of the other pastors for your love and investment with us on a pastor appreciation kind of month. And thank you for uh, all of you and your love for us. Uh, It is so much felt uh, on our pastoral staff. This morning... We have already had the text read for us, but I would like for you to join me as I pray and ask the Lord for his divine help to help us to understand it. Join me this morning as I pray. Father, I need you today. I understand that even though I have prepared to explain this text, it is your spirit that ultimately is the one who applies the text and opens people's eyes to the truth of it. And so right now I ask for all of your children that are in this service that you would allow them today to understand the intent of this text. And Father, would you do your particular work in each individual believer? And then Father, I also pray for those who may be here today who have never become followers of Jesus, that even as they hear me speak to your children today in this service, that you would bring them to a place where they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for that help today. I claim the verse, if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And that we know that we have the petitions that we desired of you. And so I ask, you've commanded me to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And so I ask that you would help me to do this today, and Lord, that you would allow your people to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Are there any Braves fans out there today? All right. Not the way I normally start a message, okay? On Tuesday, the Atlanta Braves secured the world championship for the city of Atlanta. Let me ask you this. How many of those fans, how many of you fans out there went to the parade? Anybody? All right, we got a few over here. Okay, a few back there. Uh, How many of you went to a game this year? You went to a game. All right, numbers of you out there. How many of you went to a World Series game? All right, got some over there, yeah. How many of you at least, you watched a game on TV? Okay, you watched the game on, okay, a lot of you there. How many of you watched an entire World Series game? Okay, that means you, you missed out on sleep, okay? 
many of us are glad the playoffs are done and the World Series is done because now we can get back to our sleep routines, okay? How many of you wore pearls? And if you're a fan, you know, you wore some pearls, okay? You wore some pearls. Even some guys are admitting that here, okay? How many of you have already bought some new merchandise? You bought some new merchandise, okay? Man, the shirt that I wanted is no longer available. I'm like bummed. I'm just continuing to check the site and see if this shirt comes back onto the market, okay? If you're a Braves fan, shouldn't you live out the reality in some way? And many of you showed the reality that you're a Braves fan by attending games, buying merchandise, doing various things out of the ordinary, like wearing pearls, okay? You should have done that. That's appropriate. That's in step with being a Braves fan. Now, I have another question for you. How many of you out there are Christians? You could say you're a biblical Christian. All right. Okay, you're a Christian. Okay, now, if you're not, that's okay. Okay, we're glad you're here. Okay, we're glad that you've attended today and you're investigating Christianity. So if you couldn't raise your hand there, thank you for coming today. We hope that you enjoy your time here and learn something. Of course, if you're a Christian, okay, and you affirm that to be the case, you know that Jesus Christ did a whole lot more than bringing you a trophy, okay? He came to earth, and he brought salvation. He did a whole lot more than swing a bat and send a ball out of the park. He allowed his life to be placed on a cross, and there he suffered the wrath of the Father, and endured the cross, despising the shame. He did all that for you. And if you have become a great fan of his, more a disciple of his, shouldn't that demand a certain level of commitment? A certain level of, you could even say, public commitment where you show that your faith is real. Shouldn't a person live in line with who they serve and what he's done for you? That is one of the messages of the book of Philippians. It's this truth. You and I ought to live your life consistent with the gospel. If you claim to be a Braves fan... You ought to live consistently and show people, hey, I'm actually not just a bandwagon fan. I live it out. If you here today claim to be a true biblical Christian, not a cultural Christian. We've got a lot of cultural Christians in our community. But if you claim to be a biblical Christian, you've come to be a Christian through the way the Bible tells you, through faith in Jesus Christ, then shouldn't you live a life publicly that declares that to be the, faith, the, the, the truth. Gospel receivers must be gospel displayers. Those who have received the gospel should now live in light of the gospel. And in our text, Paul does something for the first time in the book of Philippians. 
after kind of thanking them all, I mean, thanking God for what he's been doing in their lives, after he introduced himself, after he told you about his very difficult situations and how he was rejoicing in them, and as he even looked to the future and not knowing what was going to happen to him as he's in prison, and as he tells them, I'm going to keep rejoicing, for the first time in the book, he moves from simply, you could say, telling them about his life, he moves to his first command to them. He tells them what they are to do as a result of having become followers of Jesus. And he gives this command in verse 27 of our text. Let me read it to you. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. All right, command number one in the book of Philippians is this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What is that command telling you to do? Well, first of all, that word only at the beginning of it The first word you could say in your English translation is put there for emphasis. It's emphasizing the command that is going to follow. If you're going to focus on anything, only do this. Now, he's not meaning this is the only thing you need to do, but he's telling you to give yourself and the emphasis of your life to obey this command. And what was it? To let the manner of your life. What's that meaning? Well, that little phrase, let the manner of your life, is kind of the verb that's in the imperative command or imperative tense. This word is used only twice in your New Testament. And it literally has been derived, we derive the word there, it's based on the word city. In fact, the, the word polis is within the word, and that's the Greek word for a city. And many of you know, Greek was known for their city-states. And the verb that comes out of that particular word, city, is where we have derived the word politics. But the idea here is this. It's literally, I want you to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. The Philippians were a city that knew a lot about citizenship. In fact, they prided themselves on having Roman citizenship. There were certain colonies all across the known world at that time that had the privilege of being Roman colonies. And the people who lived there, many of them, had Roman citizenship. And they had this citizenship, which was really the most coveted citizenship of that day and age, because it was the most powerful empire. And Paul knew that a number of these people prided themselves on that citizenship. However, there was a much greater citizenship that they had received as a result of coming into the family of Jesus Christ. When they become a follower of Jesus Christ, they had a new citizenship that trumped their current citizenship of being a Roman citizen. And that was this, they became a citizen of heaven. 
In fact, later in the book of Philippians, he focuses on that. In fact, in your Bibles, turn over to chapter 3 for just a moment. In Philippians chapter 3, notice what he says in verse 20 of Philippians 3. He says, but our citizenship is where? Is in heaven. Why? Because this church, no doubt, had been thinking about their citizenship in Rome, but he says our citizenship, the one that trumps all of this, is the citizenship that you and I now have in a much more significant location, and that is in heaven. And so what he's calling and commanding them to do is this, I want you to live as a citizen of heaven worthy of the gospel. You and I are to live as a citizen of heaven while we're still a citizen of earth. We have dual citizenship. But the priority is this idea of heaven. And what accomplished this for your life? It was the gospel. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and provided you something amazing. And in fact, the text says you are to now live in a manner manner worthy of the gospel. Of course, the gospel was the good news of Jesus and how he came and died as man's sinless substitute. The people that he's writing in the book in the city of Philippi was a church that had embraced Jesus. And when he tells them this, when he tells them to live worthy of the gospel, what did he mean by that? Now, we know this, none of us in this room can live to merit the gospel. It wasn't a point where what we did or what we accomplished was worthy of the gospel coming to us. We know we can't do that. You and I are all unworthy people. We were all lost in sin and shackled in our own love of our own self. So what does this mean? It carries the idea of this. It carries the idea of walking consistent or in step with the gospel. If you, in fact, have been given the gospel and you've come to know it, you ought to live in a manner that is consistent with that great message of what he's done for you. You ought to walk in a manner that is in line or in the light of. If you have received the gospel, you should live accordingly. Your life ought to reflect the calling that you have. I remember when I was in high school. It was when I was a junior in high school, I had been elected at that time student body vice president. Some of you may not know this, but at that point, one of our other members of our church, Kent Martindale, was the student body president. He was a year above me. And when I was a, a junior as the student body vice president, there was one day I did not live up to my calling. But we were at this band concert, and it was kind of a I was in the amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater at the school we were at, and the, kind of the stands kind of spread out different, uh, different ways, and I was on this side, kind of the left side of the amphitheater, and I believe it was Kent and maybe a couple of my other friends who happened to be on the other side, and you could kind of like look at them across the band concert. And here it was, supposed to be kind of one of the examples to the church, uh, not the church, the school. I had been elected uh, a leadership position, 
And as this band concert continued on, I was kind of bored or whatever, and so I started making faces across the amphitheater at some of my good friends, trying to make them laugh and and just enjoying my time when all of a sudden I felt this hand on my shoulder. And I look back, and one of the sponsors who was in charge of the student council looked at me and says, you, get out of here. And guess what? I felt about that big. I can still distinctly remember going to one of the men's bathrooms in one of the buildings there and just sitting on the floor like, I am so stupid. Why was I not living up to the response? I was supposed to be an example to this, and I did not live up to the calling or the election that I had achieved. Lebanon Baptist Church, if you have been called by the gospel, if you have been elected into the most incredible family, it should affect the way you live your life every day. In fact, there was another letter that Paul wrote around this time to a group of people called the Ephesians. And what does he do in the book of Ephesians? It's six chapters. And in the first three chapters, he tells them all the things that God has done for them in the gospel. Read it. How he chose you before the foundation of the world. How he took away your sins. How he brought you who were estranged from God. And he brought you into this family. And he's done all of this for you. And it's like you get to the end of chapter 3 and you're like, woohoo, this is incredible all that God's done for me. But, that he, but he doesn't stop there. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now therefore, I want you to walk in a way worthy of this or consistent with this. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he lays out all of these commands for you and I to live like children obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That's why he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint's. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light. Walk as children of light. Lebanon Baptist Church, if God has done all of this for you in the gospel, and you have received it, he's forgiven you of all your sins, should you not only live your life in a manner consistent with the gospel? Of course, that's what he wants you to do. The sad thing is so often we fail in this or we get inconsistent with it. And aren't you glad that Paul knows the church of Philippi well enough that he's got to remind them to do it? Lebanon Baptist Church, I know you well enough and I know myself well enough that I need to be reminded that I need to live my life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you may be here today and you say, I've stopped doing that. In fact, I've become a whole lot less vocal for the the cause of Christ. I've I've gotten involved in things I never should have gotten involved in. The good thing is you have a God who can help restore you and bring you back to a place to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's what he calls them to do. So you'd say, Pastor Brian, 
I'm to live my life consistent with the gospel. What does this look like? I'm glad you asked. Because what the Apostle Paul does is he gives what it should look like, whether he came, he says, whether I come and see you or whether I'm not able to come and see you because I'm stuck in prison here, I at least want to hear you're living a certain way. And he shows, and he gives really three, you could say ways that this, how this looks like. And the first one is this, to live a life consistent with the gospel ought to be like this fight like soldiers defending the gospel fight like soldiers defending the gospel and if you'll notice the next three characteristics that are going to follow this command are all illustrated in many ways by soldiers let me let me help you define them in our text look in the middle of verse 27 he begins by saying this he says that I may hear that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit. That's going to be our first one. And then with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here's the third, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here under the fighting like soldiers defending the gospel, let me give you just these three. Let me just talk to you about these three Characteristics, And the first one is this, you ought to stand firm. That word means to sink your feet into the ground and stand your ground. In fact, we're told to do this, according to the text, you're to do this in one spirit. Now here, as a reminder to you, this letter was not written to an individual person in Philippi. It wasn't like written to uh, Finley. Hey, Finley, I want you to know about this. No, it was written to an entire church. And when he's talking to them, he's talking about them standing firm, not individually. So often we in the United States and with our own view of interpretation, we get so individualistic in our interpretations. But you know that God doesn't want you to just be yourself an individual Christian. He wants you to do it as a church. You have a responsibility for your family. And he says, I want you all. To stand firm in one spirit. Now, the question is this. Is he referring to that all of them would be standing in the Holy Spirit? Is that what he's talking about here? And when you see the word spirit, he's talking about that everyone would strive to be walking in the spirit. It could be that. In fact, there's another, uh, a number of other places in your New Testament where he says for them to be united in spirit. That I believe he's particularly talking about the Holy Spirit. But here, I kind of believe because what he's about to talk about, he says one spirit and one soul or one mind. He's more talking about, you could say somewhat maybe the human spirit, that you would all do it with one spirit. That you would stand firm together as a church. In fact, he'll bring this up later in the book of Philippians, if you want to look there. In Philippians 4 verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I long, or whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. There it is again. Stand firm. But how? Stand firm thus in the Lord. You say, how do I do, how do I stand firm? I submit to you, you stand firm is when all of us choose to stand firm in the Lord together. 
that we would focus our attention on the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more unified than standing in the Lord and what he has done, but not doing this simply individually, but helping my whole entire church. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you standing on him? Are you standing on the promises? I mean, there's a song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And if you're going to stand firm, there's no other place to stand than on the rock of Jesus, reminding yourself of who he is and what he's done. And here, I mean, remember what Jesus said when he came to his teachings, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount? He gave Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he gave all of his teachings that he gave. And then he says this, he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a what? On a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and beat upon the house and it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. You say, Pastor Brian, how can I live out the gospel? Well, I need to fight like a soldier and the way I do that is I stand firm. And how do I stand firm? I do it by standing on Jesus and his teachings and seeking to live my life firmly on those truths, and I'm not doing it simply as an individual, but I'm helping my entire church to stand firm in the Lord. That's how you live consistently for the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He says, number two, not only standing firm, but also striving side by side with one mind. This term, the, the term here that underlies your English translation is a Greek word that comes from the the arena of athletics. And the idea is of a team working together with one mind. They all have to contribute in order for them to see success. I mean, didn't we see that this past month with the Braves? I mean, imagine you just had a pitcher on the mound. Anytime the other team hit a ball, They're going to score a ton of runs because why? You're going to need every member of the team doing their part. And there's nothing like postseason baseball where you're utilizing all different parts of your team. You're utilizing the bullpen. You're utilizing different people and capitalizing on their particular skills. And what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, number one, if you're going to live a life consistent with the gospel, you as a church need to stand firm in the Lord, but you also need to strive side by side and realize that you need other people within the body to help you to do this. I've said this numbers of occasions at Lebanon Baptist Church. You are a child of God, but you're not an only child. And you have a family, and you're going to need that family to help you live for the Lord. And that's why Paul, when he writes this, he says, live out the gospel, stand firm, but do it side by side with other people for the faith of the gospel. You can't do this on your own. You need a church. That's one of the reasons why we encourage you to jump into a growth group. How can you attend a big church and live out all the one another's? Well, you need to get small in some ways. And one of the ways you can do that is jumping into a small group and learn how to live out the one another's in smaller settings. And if you're ever interested in getting into one, you talk to Pastor Josh or one of the other pastors, but you need to strive side by side. 
It's interesting. Later in the book again, Paul confronts two women, Eutychus and Syntyche, that evidently got at odds with one another. They got upset with one another, and he comes to another one of the disciples who I guess his life was called True Yoke Fellow. I mean, he lived, he must have lived helping bring people together. He says, help those women who used to labor side by side with me. And he uses the same phrase again. And maybe you're here today and there is someone on this side of the room or someone on that side of the room, whether it's another man or another woman that you are now at odds with. Maybe the person you're at odds with is the person you go home with in the car. And if you're going to live for the Lord and strive together and live a life consistent with the gospel, you need to learn how to strive side by side. But he doesn't stop there. He says side by side for what? For the faith of the gospel. And what he means by that is this. The body of truths, the teachings that have all been, you could say, delivered to you in the gospel. Jude tells us that you and I ought to be people that earnestly contend for the faith and protect the faith. Sad thing, so often churches don't know what to fight about. I mean, has, has it not over the last number of months, we have fought about masks, we have fought about vaccinations, we have fought about all of these other things. Okay, Now, it's good to have your opinion on certain things, but if it's not spelled out particularly in Scripture, it's a second-shelf issue, okay? And so often, you can start attacking people on the other side of the aisle because they don't necessarily agree with you on all the points of how you lay out truths. And if there's anything that you, if there's anybody you should be striving side-by-side with, it's the people in this room. And what should you be striving for? The faith of the gospel. Okay? Yes, we can agree to disagree on certain things and do it agreeably. But you know what? There's something much more important than politics. And that's this. It's the faith of the gospel. And there's nothing more unifying than that. And so let's live humble Let's live loving the gospel, embracing Jesus and all that he is, and let's strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not the side issues. And then he says a third thing. Stand firm, and he says do this in one spirit. Strive side by side, do this with one mind. And then he finally says don't have fear, no fear. Remember that big, uh, they used to have a, a big emphasis on no fear. And he's telling you no fear, Paul is, with this little phrase, he says this, going back to chapter 1, verse uh, 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So here he calls them, don't be fearful in the midst of you standing firm for the gospel. This term is used only one time in your New Testament. However, it's used in classical Greek for spooking of a horse. And the idea is, 
don't let any of your adversaries spook you and make you afraid of what's going on. They are not to allow the opponents to intimidate them. When they encounter opposition, you're supposed to put your trust in the Lord. In fact, that's what Jesus told you to do. In in Matthew chapter 10, he tells you this, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't we so often, we can do that. We're afraid of people who can do harm to us. He says, don't care, don't fear people who can kill your body, but fear rather him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the idea is this, you live in the fear of God. Because it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And so Paul is just reiterating, don't fear these opponents. He's just echoing what Jesus had already said. And so as they fought like these types of soldiers, as they stood firm, as they strove side by side, as they exercised no fear, what would happen? It would become a clear sign. That's what it says at the end of verse 28. It says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let me just say here, this is an incredibly difficult section to translate. Because, in fact, many of you have different translations, and some of them go different ways on how they're trying to interpret the underlying Greek in this particular verse. It could mean this, okay? It could mean this. It was a sign to their opponents, the people who were persecuting them. It was a sign to opponents that they were not going to win. But to you, it was going to be a sign that you were going to win. So it was kind of a dual sign. And so it was like these people who were persecuting, as they saw how you responded, in their mind they were like, oh great, because they're responding in the right way, that means we're going to be in trouble one day. That was kind of the initial way I took it. That's one way of taking it. One could be, it's a sign to you, okay, the believers, what, what this is a sign as they do this, it's a sign to you of their ultimate destruction, and of your ultimate salvation. So that could be a way of taking it. Or it could be three. It's a sign to them, initially, of your apparent destruction. Hey, this person's going down. The opponents thought as they were persecuting you, because you were standing for God, it was just a sign, hey, it's not going to work for you. But to you, it was of a sign of ultimate salvation coming from God. One translator put it this way. In no way let your adversaries strike terror in you. For although they see your loyalty to the truth as inevitably leading to your persecution and death, you see it as leading, to, leading through persecution to the salvation of your souls. You say, Pastor Brian, which way do you go? I kind of go the last one, the one I just said. We cannot be definitive what we can be. It was a clear sign. And salvation and destruction are going to come at the hands of who? God. He's in charge of it all. So you might as well commit your life to him and trust him, and he ultimately will clearly deliver you. So I stop here, and I'll tell you this. God wants you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
Live like a citizen who has received the gospel. And one of the ways you do this is by being a person who fights like soldiers defending the gospel. God wants you to be like a unit. Standing firm, working together, not fearing. It's interesting, Philippi is in Macedonia. It's the upper part of the Greek, you could say, peninsula. Philippi had a great picture in mind of soldiers who actually did this physically. 500 years before the writing of this book, on their very soil, soldiers led by a man by the name of Leonidas, Leonidas, my dad, of Sparta, he stood against the invaders of Persia. Many of you heard the story of Persia coming in and invading Greece, and they came with their hordes. Some of them said more than a million invaders. And all of the Greek city-states were thinking, how are we going to defend our country? Leonidas, what did he do? He was one of the men who led some of the most, you could say, agile and strongest men in Greece, the Spartans. And it was said that he took his soldiers to a place called the Hot Gates in Thermopylae. It was right there as you're making your way toward the southern part of Greece, and he stood in a place that was very strategic. There was really only one way to get through to the lower part of Greece, and that's what the Persians were trying to do. And so he took his men, and for three days he stood firm. Not only that, they stood side by side. They fought together as Spartans trying to defend their country. Plutarch, one of the recorders of this history, recorded how Xerxes called to Leonidas to lay down his arms. Hey, lay down your arms. He responded, come and get them. Come and get them. In fact, even today, if you were to go into Athens and buy t-shirts, they still go with that phrase, come and get them. You know what God calls you to do? He calls you, you're not in defense of the country of Greece. You are citizens of heaven and he will win. And you are called in the midst of this life to only let your life be worthy of the gospel. And that means sometimes fighting with your feet firmly fixed on Jesus, striving side by side with others in the faith of the gospel, and not being fearful of what's going on. But instead of being fearful, praying with all prayer and supplication, this is where you put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are ambassadors for Christ and we're to stand for him. And so number one, we're supposed to fight soldiers defending the gospel. But as I close, look at these last two very simple things. You're also to do this. You are to suffer like a savior who gave you the gospel. Paul tells them of a gift that they had been granted. Look what it says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That little word granted there carries the idea of this being graced. You have been graced in a certain way. 
You have been given an incredible gift, and that gift was for the sake of Christ. You were given the great privilege of not only being given faith in Jesus. Those of you in this room who have placed your faith in Jesus, it may look like you were smart and that you came to the right conclusion and that you were one of the wise ones in this world. But let me tell you, even the faith that you have, you were granted by God Almighty. He granted you not only faith, but he's granted you something else. He's granted you the privilege of following in his steps of suffering. Just like Jesus had to suffer and he died for you, you have been graced, you and I, in the day and age that we even live, have been graced with the opportunity to suffer as he did to display his name. Back when the early disciples had to do this in Acts chapter 5, what did they say? Then they left the presence of the council. This is after they had been beaten. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Did you know that you and I, because of Jesus, you are now called to face suffering as we spread the gospel? In fact, in the book of Colossians, when Paul writes the Colossians, he says this, now he tells them, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Because he was in the midst of dealing with suffering as he's trying to get the gospel out. And what does he say? And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You say, what is Paul saying here? He's not saying that what Jesus was afflicted with and all of the persecutions that he had, he's not saying that Jesus' suffering wasn't sufficient to save you from sin and hell. It was totally sufficient. What he is saying is that Jesus' value is not yet seen by all the nations. And what he is allowing to happen is you and I, who are, you could say, his followers, As Satan continues to try to seek to have the advantage, he will not have it. But his afflictions are still being brought upon his own children. And as you and I endure those afflictions and follow him in the midst of suffering, we put on to display to the church, not just the ones who see it now, but the ones who ultimately will come to him. And you and I are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Why? For the sake of his body, the church, so that more people could come. And as you and I respond to this affliction, it's God's path to bring more people into his family. We're to follow in Jesus' path, and this is part of the gospel. Part of being a gospel recipient is this. You will suffer this side of heaven. In fact, Paul tells the Romans in Romans 8, verse 17, he says this, And if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Lebanon Baptist Church, are you involved in any suffering right now? I'm not just talking about, hey, I got this bum knee, Or my girlfriend broke up with me. This is, as you seek to live out the gospel and tell people about Jesus, do you experience any suffering? 
Paul told Timothy, he said this in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ, I mean, godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. Question I have for you here is this. Could the Philippians have lived their life in Philippi under the radar? Let's say they came to Jesus and they just said, hey, I don't want to be too vocal about my relationship with Jesus. Could they have kept their mouth shut? Could they have? Yeah. Could they have just gone about their own businesses, their own way of life, just kept doing what they were doing and never like stepped into the pond, you could say? Could they have just let the world go to hell? They could have, and they probably would not have suffered the persecution. But that is not what God has called us to do. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are to speak of him. And I'll tell you this, when you live for Jesus, you will suffer. Now, this is not what I'm telling you to do. Our focus should be not this. I got to go find persecution somewhere in the city. Where am I going to find persecution? Where are people getting beat up for Jesus? I got to get there. Where's the persecution happening? That's where I want to be. That's not how you do it. Don't go, don't go, I just got to have persecution because the Bible says all the live godly in Christ Jesus shall have persecution. So I got to go find it. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. What should your focus be? Just start living godly in Christ Jesus. And guess what will happen? You'll start experiencing it. Because if your Lord did, who lived perfectly godly, suffered persecution, as your focus is living godly, it will come. You say, but Pastor Brian, I want leisure. I want all peace. Live a life worthy of the gospel. You ought to live for him. You ought to strive to... Speak his name. And I'll tell you, sometimes that persecution will come from the very place you least expected it. I mean, where did Jesus' persecution come from? Did it come from, you could say, the atheistic crowd? His persecution actually came from the religious crowd. And sometimes it'll come from your own family. It'll come from very difficult spots. But you have to strive to live for the gospel. Is Jesus the center of your affections? Or as leisure, is money, the path of following Jesus involves suffering. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Why? How? You do it by fighting like soldiers in a fight for the gospel. You do it like a savior. You live like him and you suffer like him who gave you the gospel. But finally, we end with this. You learn from an apostle who displayed the gospel. Our text ends with Paul affirming the fact that he was well aware that they were involved in the same conflict as he was. Look how the text ends. He says, engaged. He knew that they were engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They had many years before... Remember when he had come to Philippi and started proclaiming Jesus, and as he began to proclaim Jesus and accomplish what God had called him to do in Philippi, what happened? He got beaten by rods, thrown into a prison, 
and he began to sing with Silas in the midst of prison, and they were able to see more people come to Christ. And what he tells them here is this. He says, I know that you're engaged in the same conflict as I'm engaged in. He was well aware that that Philippi hadn't changed. And as people lived godly in Philippi, they were going to encounter persecutions, but they also knew that he was in the midst of persecution, but he was continuing to live for God in the midst of his current predicament. Here, in a way, he reminds them that they are called to live the same way that he had been living. They are to follow him even as he followed Christ. You say, how did he do this? He'll tell you in the next section the mindset he had in order to accomplish this. When he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But Lebanon Baptist Church, we end with this. God is calling every one of you, if you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, to live your life consistent with the gospel. You've been called. We all agree, Braves fans should show their loyalty to their team in some way. But Jesus fans... But biblical Christians ought to show even more that they are followers of Jesus. How? By fighting like soldiers in defense of the gospel, like suffering as a Savior who gave you the gospel, and by following an apostle who delivered you the gospel. Are you showing those evidences? You may be here today and you'd say, Pastor Brian, right now my life is not living in line with the gospel. What am I supposed to do? My initial thing would be, hey, go to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and look at all those commands and start obeying them. But that's not where I'm going. My challenge to you is this. Go to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and look what Jesus did for you. And you can't help but do 4, 5, and 6. He did all that for you. So live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you know, it won't be as hard to let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Or to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. May God help us to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we now are reminded of what you have accomplished for us on the cross, as we take the Lord's table, would you help us to be reminded of what you did and then respond by living our life Sunday through Saturday all out for the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.